afraid of filling in blanks when I stop in the middle of a sentence. Uh, okay. I, I'll come back when you say the next word. <laughs> All right. Did you see this story? Uh, this It says, Copter goes down pi- without the pilot aboard. That's what I wrote. Let's oh, see what's yes. the headline of the story here. Uh, oh, that is the headline. Uh, that is the headline. This is from the uh, keysnet.com. I'm going to guess that this is the Florida Keys, maybe? I don't know. Almorada, uh, Monroe County. Florida Keys, yeah, the Florida Keys keynoter. Uh, pilot escaped with a broken arm after a small helicopter. It, it from the picture, it is an a Robinson R22. Uh, crashed in shallow water near Indian Key on Saturday. Skipping ahead a couple paragraphs. Apparently, the pilot stepped out of the cockpit to check the rear rotor, 
but the helicopter suddenly lurched into the air while the pilot was standing on the skid on one of the skids. So that's right. And the pilot held on for a little bit, and then he jumped off. I guess. So I'm like, this is this is. Not, I don't. I'm not sure I'm buying this story. I'm not How sure. You, you think the guy, the pilot like fell out? I, well, yeah. But there, first of all, there's this. Why would you know? I mean, you got to be nuts to get out of. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever gotten out of your airplane while the engine's running and there's nobody in it standing on the brakes? No, one, of course not. Um, one, once when I had hel- it helicopters, tied down. It's, it is. Yeah. Hey, yeah. <clears throat> David, what did you do? Uh, I had it tied down. and, uh, and Okay. Famous I last mean, words, by the way. Yeah. I mean, all three points. Uh, and got out to. Uh, so you weren't intending to taxi or fly. You were just no. running up the engine or something. I needed the engine to warm up. I was going to change the oil. I took it out to a run-up pad. It was about minus 20, and with the airplane not moving, it didn't really get warm in the cabin. So I tied it down, you know, like I was going to leave it in a gale, and I let it run at about 1,200 RPM, and I went into the shop and stood there and watched it and drank a cup of coffee, and about 10 minutes later, I went out, and sure enough, it was warm. Yeah, okay. The oil was. Yeah, that's good. And, Jeb, you never... I've never done that. No, I, I I would rather just go fly the airplane and roll, roll the oil. Yeah. But hel- helicopters, um, to say they're different is would be to to understate the situation. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I to say I know anything about uh, helicopters would be to overstate the situation. But I've certainly seen helicopters um, idling with the main rotor turning and, and the tail rotor turning at idle. Um, with people, you know, jumping in and out, changing seats, things like that. Um, the the only way that this happened, as described in this in this uh, in this article, is if the throttle. Uh, uh, and they have, they have my understanding of Robinson, at least R twenty two, is they have a twist grip uh, throttle, not like a motorcycle, that you can lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way this happened is somehow the when the either the pilot you know, left the throttle locked uh, to get out and to check the tail rotor, although why you would leave it uh, at a high RPM to check the tail rotor is beyond me. Um, or he, he kicked something when he got out and, and it went to, to, you know, a high power setting or something like that. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, and, I, well, and so this is very curious. But uh, And this is the second thing that puzzles me is that I was, on, again, I know nothing about flying helicopters except what you, you know, hear. Uh, is that they are so notoriously unstable that I find it hard to believe that this aircraft managed to move itself 50 feet. Um, it would seem to me, you like my street noise here, um, you, it would seem to me that it would basically roll over on its, ta- on its you know, back within a couple lengths from what mm-hmm. I've always heard. We should get Turbo well, Ed, um, the UCAP listener who gave me the legendary it, ride it down It flew more than 50 feet, according to this story, if you piece together the various What does uh, it say? Items. The, the helicopter landed on the open town square field at Indian Key State Park, and then the helicopter crashed in about four feet of water, about 50 feet from the Indian Key Dock. Ah, okay. And i got to think that the dock and the town square field are two different locations. So there's more, you know, whether it's 56 feet or 156 feet or 456 feet, we don't know, but it's more than 50 feet. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know whether I buy this or not. We should get, I, I don't know uh, well, that I buy this or not either. I, 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 I just kind of wonder if, if you know, apparently the helicopter did land 
and and you know maybe he just didn't strap himself in or something. I don't know. When he, when he went to take back off, he maybe didn't strap himself in. I don't know. And and why did he hold on to the skids? You know, it's like if the airplane, if the if the helicopter is going to fly, I want it. I don't want to be with it. All right. You know, did he well, think he was going to climb back in while it was flying? It's, it's probably an instinctive thing. Oh crap. It's yeah. t- going away. I need to get, hold on, hold on. Oh, wait. Oh, wait a minute. Now I'm 100 feet up. <laughs> yeah, now, try, trying to hold it on the ground, and all of a sudden he's not on the ground anymore. And uh-huh. he, there's a problem here, guys. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we also have a, a very different kind of story. But, uh, Jeb, you show, you pointed us to some, I think it was Jeb who pointed us to yeah. some pictures here. What, what, what we, what's the story here? I mean, this is a, a uh, what is it like? It's a de- it's a debonair. It's, it's an A thirty three debonair, as I recall. Uh, okay, um, uh, earlier version of mine, my airplane, but um, um, crashed in a the, snowy the, field near I don't a know road. The, I don't know the full story about this, but the guy put it down um, uh, near Salt Lake City, between in, in basically in a median strip between two uh, interstate highway segments, and. Um, Oh, I see. That's true. Oh, I thought, those, I thought that was a railroad train, but no, that's 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 the other lane of yeah, the highway. I see. Did right. substantial damage to the airplane. I guess the the real story here, real story here is it's just a lot of good photos of of recovery uh, of the aircraft and, and the damage to it. Um, uh, looks to me like it's good and totaled, uh, but that's just me. Yeah, well, it uh, looks like they basically fell off from the firewall forward. Um, yeah, aside from the wings being the ripped left, up, and, the left wing is is uh, beer can material. Uh, the right wing is looks like it might be usable. Um, the, well, the except that it's detached from about halfway. The yeah. <clears throat> fuselage is, is crumpled after the cabin, um, and the engine in in uh, engine compartment are uh, the engine mounts and everything like that got hosed also. So it's going to be you know I think pretty much beer can fodder. I was going to uh, say there's salvageable parts on it from the looks yeah. of it. You know, some of the windows, the door, uh, the gas couch compartment the tail door. Feathers. Yeah. Uh, but nothing on the wings and the flaps. Yeah. I'm betting, uh, well, I don't know. The landing gear components may all be good if, if he landed gear, it, gear up. Looks like he did land gear up, too, because th- there's, a, there's a picture here of it being hoisted off the, off the accident side, and, and the gear is not down. Um, I don't know everything there is to know about this, but um, the scuttlebutt is that the guy ran out of gas. I see. Well, the well, tail uh, number's right there. Did you try looking it up? I haven't looked it up. There's no need to look it up. Well, wow, and the helicopter landing on the highway to evac the wounded. Pretty amazing scene. Yeah. yeah. It, there are he a lot was of, seriously injured. He was, he, or I think, critically injured, actually. Yeah, they're definitely uh, taking away. It's fairly rough. Um, but he had the right of way. If you look at the sign in front of picture he, he, number he 19, the right way. it says wrong way for the traffic coming from the right. And he was right. going to, to the right. So he at least was going in the right direction. Well, right. I'm he sure that's a consolation. With the traffic. <laughs> yeah, so, some small consolation. But I understand he got pretty banged up. That's fairly rough terrain there where he yeah. came down. As yeah. far uh, as I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But, yeah. um, so I is that? He, he may or may not have run out of gas. It may have been some other issue. But uh, as I say, the scuttlebutt is ran out of gas. Yeah. And there are just a lot. Of, I mean, 20, 20 plus, almost 30 really interesting pictures yeah yeah it's really quite a collection uh the uh photographer i saw a name on some of these and not on others 
apparently there was several photographers because um, I read several names uh, associated with, with yeah. this. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. I gotta go back got here. Twenty-three. Oh wow, what an amazing shot! Number twenty-three. It really gives you perspective on the damage to the left wing. Yeah, oh, it's really just one. curled up. Huh? Yeah, and, uh, it really is. Yeah. How, well, how 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 did you do that? <laughs> I guess you had hit that wing low. I guess so. Um, and it, you know, just because the airplane came to rest pointed in one direction doesn't mean it was started it out. Started there. in that way. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and with that, I will say uh, welcome, folks, to episode 163, finally, of uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, we're recording this episode on Friday evening, December 11th. 2009, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is uh, one of those voices, Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? You're a little under the weather tonight. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm under the weather, but I'm glad to be here. I got a nice cold lineys uh, uh, and a nice cold night, so uh, a little warm friendship and conversation, and uh, evens things out. There you go. There you go. Where, where are you going to find a warm friendship, dude? <laughs> I'm going out. I filed oh, in an order a while ago. So Okay. I'll that. <laughs> and also here in the virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside. He's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you tonight, Jeb? I'm a lot warmer uh, than I think either of you two are. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just an e. That's good. It goes without saying. Yeah, you, it's actually kind of chilly here. Uh, okay, well, go what, ahead. Get it out. What, what is it? Below seventy? It is below seventy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. It was Man, fifty-three on the you car struggle. Yeah, I know. It's fifty-three on a car thermometer coming home, but it's about ten degrees off. So I'll give it sixty-three. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. One little administrative thing, uh, not administrative, Hello. but just sort of uh, f yeah. uh, filling in the blanks here. Uh, on last, uh, the last episode, I, I entered the show by describing it as take two and said, I'll explain that later, and then proceeded to forget to explain it. And uh, because I know our listeners take note of all these things and they're just dying to know the answer, it's, I'll say who, that. Uh, who's, who, who's this talking? That uh, we. Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> okay, I did forget tonight. I did forget tonight. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. Had me worried. Thank you. The Thank alcohol you. consumption capital of the world. So apparently, <laughs> huh? That's an interesting bit of statistic. That you, but it's not. No, see, no, no. It's the uh, it's the alcohol purchasing capital of the world. We don't. It doesn't all get consumed here. The whole point was that Massachusetts well, and Maine all come over and buy their beer here. We we presume it doesn't get all purchase there but the records demonstrate i mean it doesn't get all consumed there the records demonstrate that on a per capita basis new hampshire has the highest um consumption of of alcohol at least as as that is measured by purchases exactly i'm, I'm so uh, distilled and fermented no mm -hmm. and what i'm pointing out here is that it, that that stat has nothing to do with consumed it has to do with purchased right and, well uh, but consuming is the best part of it and and you know and the story referred to uh, to uh, drinking as a vice and I'm not sure if I'm buying that part of the story either. You know they said New Hampshire's meant to turn a vice into a virtue or something like that. And they're like, well, what's a vice about it? Come on, it's lying cool. I was going to say in, in, anything except flying done in moderation is generally not bad. Yeah, that's right. So, anyways, well, last I, week after was after a hard day flying. I'm kind of glad to be sitting somewhere that's you know, not today, but I, I would be glad sitting in you know something that's not moving for a while. Yeah. 
Last week was take two because we had attempted to do uh, the episode about four or five days earlier and had massive internet problems uh, that just was just insanely bad that night. I mean, I was having internet. Ironically, the only one who had good internet that night was Dave, which longtime listeners will know that's particularly uh, uh, freakish. Ironic, ironic. Yeah, ironic. And, but, and, 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 and we really need to take some of the product of that first attempt and bring it up to speed and put it somewhere where you guys can hear it because we actually got a visit from Max Headroom. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> wacky. It was pretty wacky. James was, we wanted James to join us and he was having troubles and Dave was having, tr- I mean, Jeb was having troubles internet wise and I was having trouble internet wise. Well, and the upshot of it all was that all the weird uh, uh, audio compression artifacts were making it sound just like Max Headroom. I mean, it was doing the whole jerky oh, repeating. Got, got me laughing so hard it brought tears to my eyes. I, I thought I was going to short out the microphone. We we were cracking up, and and I thought you'd traced it down to your uh, uh, your end, Jack. Uh, not, I, it was largely yeah, it was largely my end that night. Um, although we did some measurements, we yours was a little weird, and and James was pretty wonky too. It would have been a problem anyways, I think. But uh, but yeah, anyway, well, you know when you get wonky squared, you, you got to get away from the you know, round hole. So, anyways, that's what take two last week was all about, and uh, and this week is is take one, but it's take one delayed because we were going to record earlier in the week and uh, couldn't get it all together. Dave's been, been a little under the weather, and I was traveling, and toward uh, Sunday night, and then we postponed to we're going to try Tuesday, right? And yeah. And here we are on Friday. On Friday. So, anyways, TGI Friday, baby. We're nothing if not devoted. Here we are. I butt home just to get here. You did. You were winging all over America, and you made it home in time for the podcast. And then we didn't do it. Now that you brought it up, where were you winging to or from? I was in DC for the weekend. Uh huh. Uh, um, Where it promptly snowed. Good for you. Yeah, you know, I got in on Friday night and woke up Saturday morning, and it's snowing. I said. Thanks, (laughs) Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was it was it was a good day. Yeah. yeah, tramp around the snow and it was refreshing, shall we say? Well, did you have uh, to clean off the airplane before you could fly home? I did not. I uh, got the FBO, convinced them to uh, put in a heated hangar overnight for me. Good uh, melted man. Everything off. And you know it wasn't free, but uh, uh, got it done and, and uh, helped preheat the airplane a little bit. And, you know that yeah. so beats being a you know being a a, a frosted flake and oh yeah well there were airplanes that were tied down you know one fifties that had been tied down for the storm and of course they're sitting on their tail tie down ring mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the way the, it wasn't that much snow no well, it maybe, doesn't take that much for two or three inches yeah it doesn't take much doesn't take much yeah so. Here's a question I have. Uh, everyone knows that I'm thinking, uh, giving a lot of thought these days to the subject of owning my own airplane and gradually sneaking up on on somehow possessing an airplane. Um, getting lots of interesting suggestions and advice from listeners, and that's kind of fun. But uh, the upshot is going to be next year sometime before this really happens. But I'm thinking a lot about it. And one subject that keeps coming up is the question of full ownership, owning it all by myself versus sharing it somehow, either through some sort of, you know, uh, partnership, quote unquote, or, or uh, that sort of thing. And I, and I'm kind of dropping this guys on you, uh, this on you guys, but I'm wondering if you could kind of, you know, give, give me a little riff here on the, the practical differences between owning it all by yourself. And I'm not just talking about the financial differences, you know, the lifestyle differences and the, you know, 
what's your thinking on this? Is there, is one superior to the other in some way? It, it, it the standard answer is it depends. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, kind of depends on how you're going to use the airplane. The ideal situation um, would be you're going to primarily fly it during the week or or the weekend, and the other partner or partners would primarily fly it the opposite part of the week. Um, that would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah. It really just kind of depends on what the, the planned um, uh, plan missions are. Um, you know, if you've got a situation where you're going to go south and, and uh, west, and um, the other owner is going to go, you know, north and east, or, or you know, just make beach trips or, or things like that. Um, typically, you're you're going to find uh, that that may or may not work out for you. You might be able to combine some trips. Um, it, it just really all depends. And the other thing, of course, is uh, is is one or more partners going to be local primarily? Uh, will they be just out boring holes, the hundred dollar hamburger uh, mm-hmm. kind of kind of uh, uh, flying, or will they be taking uh, lengthy overnight trips, uh, multiple overnights? Um, what kind of scheduling? Um, um, Solutions or priorities will you work out? Uh, if if you need the airplane for you know what are you going to do about the holidays for example? Right. If you want to take the airplane at Christmas and he wants to take the airplane at Christmas, how are you going to resolve that situation? Um, I've I've faced those those questions before in, in partnership arrangements, um, and one of the ways that we felt was going to work, unfortunately, the partnership um, uh, didn't really get going and and um, uh, so we never really got a good test of any of this. But uh, what we came up with was uh, a uh, pro- what we called a priority pilot um, uh, arrangement. Where, uh-huh. What's that mean? Uh, <clears throat> for a week, uh, each uh, rotating each each week, it was a different pilot. But mm-hmm. for a week, and you could start it like at noon on a Friday or something like that. You could start it at, at midnight on a Sunday, however you wanted to start your week. But um, um, for that week or whatever period of time, um, one of the partners would have priority use of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, he or she could fly it without having to tell anybody else. Mm-hmm. Okay, wherever he or she wanted to, as long as either A, it was back at the end of his or her week, or B, he or she made prior arrangements to have it beyond that period of time. Yeah. Do you think that's a common uh, arrangement? I mean... Well, it was one solution. Uh, 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 there are certainly other solutions out there. Uh, if during that week one of the other partners wanted to use the airplane, he or she would have to call that, that first partner, the priority partner, um, to see if it was available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that way we had a minimum of, um, of communication. We had a minimum of misunderstandings. We, all had an, uh, we would all have a calendar on which we agreed. And... Uh, if anybody had a plan or, or planned, I should say, to to take the airplane beyond their allotted period of time, they had to work it out with with the rest of the partners. Um, that was this, but certainly by no means the only solution, uh, but it's certainly a solution. Yeah, uh, David, I think if I remember the story correctly, you never actually had partners in your airplane, but you you considered it for a while. Did you ever get as Did you get as far as talking about these sort of issues? Uh, actually, we did. Uh, and we were uh, dramatically far apart in 
what we expected to do with the airplane. Uh, you know, my friend was looking at, you know, maybe one or two trips a year where he'd be gone more than a couple of days. Otherwise, it was going to be, you know, out to Dodge City on a Friday where he's got family or liberal and back on Sunday night. Uh, or, you know, the Ponca City breakfast or, you know, out to, to Beaumont or something like that. Pretty much local stuff. Uh, my plans were for a lot of trips. Uh, you know, I'm already looking at family visits, Indiana and D.C., uh, 600 plus and almost 1,000 miles respectively, one way. Uh, I was looking at Sun and Fun, Oshkosh, NBAA, and a couple of other shows that I don't do as much, uh, where I'm going to be gone, you know, five to 12 days at a stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're kind of non-negotiable trips in my life. And uh, you, I'm all for the idea, of, you know, when I'm using the hell out of it, if I'm not going anywhere, I'm more than happy to schedule around you needing the airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We kind of looked at it, and we had some friends that were partners, five partners in a Mooney. And they had this scaling system where the more you flew it, the lower your priority was to get the airplane if there was a conflict. Right. You know, somebody that was flying at 50 hours a year needed it for a slot that you wanted it for, and you're flying at 200 hours a year, the 50-hour-a-year guy wins out. Right. right. Now, in uh, addition to uh, scheduling um, issues, how do you deal with the fact that different owners might have different financial circumstances and, and, and you know, suddenly the really, owner that, can't cover their, their monthly, you know, or whatever? You know, that's some, a, some that's a horse of do credit checks. Some, yeah. some folks do credit checks. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're talking about a club with uh, uh, multiple airplanes and members, uh, they're, they're going to want to see something like that because you're buying into uh, a monthly maintenance fee uh and shared costs for maintenance and and uh, equipment fixes and upgrades plus your hourly time and uh you know and i've seen it in partnerships where somebody fell on hard times and the other partner picked it up for a while and then the you know the partner on bad times caught up with a check later on uh, yeah. you know the the well, thing in another is that, go ahead J- dave finish your say, thought yeah yeah, the thing to remember is that there are the potential for really good financial benefits in a partnership or a flying club, uh, and they come with complications right. that you don't get with an owner, you know, as a sole owner. And if you consider the ballpark that you're shopping in and what you really need, if you can afford to go it alone, it's a lot simpler. Yeah. Jeff, you know, what are you going to say? Hands down. I was going to echo some of that in in the sense that the the issue of financial resources, um, you know, goes beyond just you know uh, the fixed costs and the hourly costs. Let's say you wanted to do some upgrades to the airplane, yep. um, and it was going to cost X, Y, or Z, uh, and the expectation, of course, would be that um, each partner would would pony up an equal amount, and you may find a partner or two that that just did not want to do that. Um, for wh- whatever reasons, financial reasons, maybe they didn't feel like the the proposed equipment upgrade was was uh, uh, valuable to them, uh, whatever. 
Uh, yep. The punchline, of course, is what are you going to do in that kind of a situation? Yeah. So it's a really complicated process and or, or question, and it has a lot to do with your the individual circumstances here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. and, and you know the 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 smartest thing anybody can do is to really try to give themselves a brutally honest assessment of what they expect to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, sitting back thinking, man, I'm going to fly 200 hours a year, and you mm-hmm. can't think of enough trips and travel that you can really afford to take without the airplane that amounts to 200 hours a year of flying. You're fooling yourself. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that's nothing wrong with flying 50 hours a year and owning the airplane. Uh, that's well, an hour it's, a week that you can do stuff. Yeah, it's it's hard. I would think hard, hard being you know a relative term, but um, in a partnership arrangement, I think it would be tough for any one partner to fly you know two hundred hours a year, and, and any of the par- other partners get uh, what might be considered their fair share of, of the time on the airplane. That's exactly um, true. Uh, and I, some years I know since I since I've owned my airplane, I've put two hundred two hundred fifty hours a year on the airplane on it, I should say, and. That's hard to do. Yeah, that's, it is. that's traveling a lot, and that's being away from home a lot. It's it's being on the road a lot, uh, and you know the airplane is just not available for anybody else during those periods. Well, and and that's what caused my my buddy, and we're still friends. We're having lunch uh, this coming week. Uh, a former colleague at the Wichita Eagle, uh, commercial instrument rated pilot, uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, he and I flew the our first airplane. We flew it together. Uh, for the evaluation and you know like do we want this airplane and we both decided at the price that we can get this airplane out absolutely we want this airplane and then we sat down and started doing a little list of the you know the 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 areas involved in the partnership including expected use and this stuff that i had on my dream list what i want to do what i'd like to do what i could do uh, before we even had a ticket, I was looking at 100 hours a year of flying. Right. And at that point, Dennis kind of leaned back and started to realize that it was going to be really difficult for him to get the kind of use out of it that he felt like. And maybe just going ahead and continuing to rent would be the smarter thing for him. And when he added up what he expected to do, he was talking about 30 or 40 hours a year. Yeah. And that's not a lot to justify spending half of what I'm going to be doing to the airplane. Uh, right, right. Well, so he backed out, and I agreed, and it, and it worked out well. And uh, I let him use the airplane when he needed the airplane, and I didn't need it. And, uh, you know, no sweat. He bought gas, and we were cool. Yeah. 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 Well, the thinking process goes on, and uh, I will continue to play with the idea and see what happens in the spring. Hey, David, the, uh, apparently there's been some motion in the uh, area of ADSB uh, uh, over the past couple weeks. Um, I won't pretend to understand it. I'm going to let you summarize it. What's going on here? Well, one of the, you know, one of the big issues about the transition to the next generation air traffic control system that the FAA wants to do, that everybody wants them to do, uh, is that it's built around uh, WASH level GPS and uh, automatic dependent surveillance hyphen broadcast and ADSB is touted as the big replacement and a big improvement for radar and it also has the benefit of 
for properly equipped airplanes, you can see other airplanes without a collision avoidance system, as long as your ADSB is working both ways, out and in, and you got a display to show it on. It could play on something like Jeb's uh, Garmin 530. Anyway, one of the hang-ups on this is not knowing what it's going to cost to put this stuff in the airplane because there were no standards, performance standards for the equipment, nor TSOs from the FAA for the equipment so that uh, avionics companies could comfortably build, design and build, and, 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 and be sure that the equipment that they, they invested in was going to meet the standards that the FAA ultimately required. Well, on December 4th, an outfit called the RTCA, uh, their working group finally issued what they call minimum operational performance standards for most of the remaining hardware pieces in the ADSB kit. That's stuff that's going to go in the airplanes primarily. And within hours of that, the FAA signed the uh, uh, what is it? Technical Standards Order, which mm-hmm. is the standard the avionics companies have to build their stuff to. And that's based on the MOPS that RTCA issued. It's all a, one has to one domino has to fall, and the next one has to fall. But now the industry has standards that they can finish working and certifying the equipment that they've all had on the drawing boards for a long time. Now, some companies have already put uh, ADSB trans uh, uh, transceivers on the market. Garmin has, uh, and the approvals that it got were under some preliminaries, some older standards, and some standards for other equipment. The fact is it it works. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the entire spectrum of what the FAA was looking at using. Uh, you know, they're they're expecting to have the entire ground station network in place by the end of 2010. That's like 54 weeks from now. Uh, it, it's nice that we finally have standards that the avionics makers can use to start producing, you know, mass producing the equipment that the airplanes are going to need so we can find out what this bloody bloody well going to cost and see whether it's worth going ADSB out and in or whether the FAA is going to, that's, that's another issue. They've got to issue their rules, their final rules on what they're expecting under, under the next gen system. Yeah. But that's, that's something that's not going to happen until next year. Now, what does this all mean to the average personal pilot? Am I going to put this stuff in my 172? Uh, beyond a certain point, you're going to have to, uh, to or at least to maintain your access to uh, Class A, B, and C airspace or to file IFR in Class E airspace. Even Class Charlie? Yeah. Not really, yeah. Okay. All right. We'll keep well, following. We're looking it. at uh, go ahead, you know, Jeb. 20, 2018, um, maybe ten years from now. Who knows? Um, yeah. Before uh, a these requirements uh, are, are before a these early requirements are put into place. In other words, um, um, right now we're just talking about um, well, the twenty ten uh, deadline here is for uh, uh, what they call surf, which is the um, air surface indications and alerts, uh, IA, surf IA, um, using ADSB in a cockpit uh, moving map display. Now, that's 
um, just been demonstrated, um, and obviously it works. It's part of this um, uh, this new standard. Um, um, but uh, talking about an in-service decision on the ADSB surveillance services on track for September 2010, so uh, uh, not quite a year from now, uh, be making a decision on that. But all the dates that we've seen um, getting to this point are on the order of 2018, 2020, something like that for um, requirements uh, um, trickling down to the GA uh, style of aircraft uh, for access to certain airspace. Um, the, uh, the equipment's not out there. Um, not all of the standards are out there. Um, no one knows how much this is all going to cost. No one knows really, uh, when all this will be coming down the pike. Um, the, uh, the thing that's going to drive this in my mind is that it's designed to, um, place the equipment of specifically the equipment for um, surveillance and um, um, control of air, of airborne aircraft uh, back in into the cockpit as opposed to into ground-based systems uh, run by the FAA. So in my my typical you know follow the money kind of of mentality on a lot of this stuff. Um, the FAA is going to want to divest itself of running these these radar systems, these radar stations, ground-based radar, a- as soon as it can, uh, to help its own budget situation, so that it can spend you know all the money on computers and everything else. But uh, uh, they're going to want to try to rush some of this through, uh, and that could well be the 2016, 2018, 2020 timeframe as we've been yeah. talking about. I've said it before. I'm not worried about 2018. By then, my cell phone will do ten times as much as this spec well, requires, and so there, there is that. There is that. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah, but you'll get charged for all the bandwidth, so you want to be careful. That. <laughs> That's an AT and T slam, by the way, folks. <laughs> and I'm with him all the way. <laughs> um, so we've been talking off and on, uh, not only uh, recently but over the years, about uh, worrying about uh, airframe icing uh, during when we get into this time of the year, and we probably should have that conversation, but I want to talk about a slightly different issue here, and that is the subject of of engine preheating. Um, And I confess I'm really ignorant about all these things. Um, I'm certainly ignorant about ice because I don't, I never would fly in ice, obviously. I'm not IFR and so forth. But even the subject of engine preheating is foreign to me. Most of my hours are in California climate. And uh, hear my train? It's a noisy night here at the home office. are in I California hear the train climate. coming. It's rolling around the bend. That's right, um, and and even the flying I've done here on the East Coast, uh, given that I'm such a, a, a winter basher, um, I basically go in hibernation in the wintertime and don't do an awful lot of flying. And my rental airplanes come right out of the hangar, so I don't have to worry about this stuff. What are the issues around <laughs> engine preheating? Uh, you know, what's up with this? When do you need to do it? How do you do it? I confess that the airplanes that I rent at Southern Maine do, in fact, have a little plug, a little AC plug, right inside the engine cowling, presumably to plug a, an extension cord into to uh, heat it. But I I've would never think had to do that's it. what that's for. Yeah. But what are the exactly. issues here? When do you have to do this? Battery charge the battery. One of the two. Yeah, charge the battery. Maybe. What's engine preheating all about? Engine preheating is all about um, um, trying to prevent wear um, to a very expensive piece of, of equipment. Um, and, and full disclosure, and, and, and you didn't know this when you put this on the on the on the list tonight. I just finished up a piece um, uh, on this overall topic for uh, 
January's Aviation Safety Magazine. So a little bit conversant with some of it. Basically, you've got uh, this hunk of metal sitting out there on the pointy end of the airplane. Uh, it's got steel in it. It's got alloys in it. And all of these different metals um, have different um, uh, heat coefficients. Uh, in other words, when they, they uh, heat up, when they're heated up, uh, they expand at different rates. Okay. Now, normally on a, on a nice sunny you know, spring, summer, or fall day, that's not a problem because the, the, uh, the extremes are not that great. But in the dead of winter in New Hampshire, where it's you know zero degrees with a wind chill, although the wind chill doesn't really you know impact the the temperature of the internals, uh, in, in, internal engine parts, um, it can be a big deal. Um, so you've got that going on. You've got tighter co- tolerances as a result of all of this, whether it's in bearings or or uh, pistons and cylinders or or various other parts of the engine. Um, and you've got, of course, because of those tighter tolerances, increased friction. And then finally, you've got the lubricating oil, the engine oil, uh, which is, gets very thick uh, in, in very, very cold weather. And um, especially when you're talking about tighter tolerances uh, because of that cold weather and uh, um, um, bearings and, and pistons and everything trying to move uh, whatnot through the engine, uh, you want that oil to flow uh, more quickly than perhaps uh, even in the summertime. So that's why we try to, we try to preheat an engine, um, to prevent abnormal wear and to ins- help ensure that the oil gets circulating uh, as quickly as possible after the engine starts. So what are the conditions under which you should start thinking about this? That's, a good, that's the $64,000 question. Yeah. Um, Lycoming says, you know, one thing, and I think Lycoming's uh, spec is is um, uh, forty five degrees. Okay. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know how old a um, uh, a recommendation that is. Uh, Continental says um, anytime the engine has been uh, twenty degrees Fahrenheit for more than two hours which I find to be a little fantastic. That's very different than 45 yeah. degrees. Yeah. yeah, very, very different. So part of the punchline here is there's a wide gulf between those two extremes from those two engine manufacturers. My personal rule of thumb Stand by is 40 Dave. degrees. Stand by, yeah. Dave. Go ahead, Jeb. My, my personal rule of thumb is 40 degrees. Um, if, it's, um, if the engine is at 40 degrees... Uh, when I go to start it, I want it to have been preheated. So how do you do that? What 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 what's the actual like, process? Like your like your uh, uh, rental airplanes, I have a, a heater uh, um, um, rig, if you will, installed on my engine, and I have the little uh, the little plug under the cowling that I would plug in a drop cord to, and just use household current. Um, and what is that and actually just heating? Run your bill up terrible there in Florida. Well, it might, it might not. Um, what that does, the, the system on my airplane, um, there's a, a pad um, on the oil pan, and there are um, bands around the base of each of the six cylinders. And all this is tied together to that electrical uh, plug. And once it's all plugged in, by resistance, of course, it heats all six cylinders, and it heats the oil in the, uh, in the oil pan. Now... It's not um, 
you know, it's not like a diesel engine glow plug. You you get ready to start the engine, you flick on the heater and wait 20 seconds or something like that. Um, and that's one of the big fallacies I think a lot of people make when they think about preheating their airplane engine. Um, you know, I'll come back to that in a moment. But the way this the way this works, and I think the the the, the way it's it's beneficial or most beneficial, is to uh, uh, apply slow, steady heat over a period of hours. Yeah. Um, to the engine because first of all, the engine didn't get cold all overnight or, or all within you know twenty or thirty minutes here. Uh, it's been cold soaked literally. Uh, it might have been sitting for several days, and so it down literally down to the core of the engine, it's cold. And uh, uh, you don't want to, uh, um, um, you know, heat up one part of the engine and, and not heat up the other parts of the engine, A. B, <clears throat> you can, you know, get a torpedo heater or, or um, some other kind of, of you know, flame-throwing device or, or forced, uh, forced air heat source and, um, you know, throw a bunch of, of heat into the cowling. And, okay, yeah, the cylinders might be a little warm and, and the cowling certainly would be warm. But you haven't really made a dent on the on the crankcase. I'm sorry, the crankshaft bearings. Uh, the heat's just not penetrated down that far. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, it's not going to help. So that's, in my mind, one of the one of the the fallacies of of uh, some of the preheat systems out there. Um, you want you want in my mind to uh, uh, apply slow, steady heat to the engine over a period of time to to heat heat it thoroughly. Uh, oil, all the all the little parts of the engine, etc. Um, you say, well, okay, well, you're just heating the cylinders on your system. Well, that's that's true, but um, over a period of time, of course, those cylinders get hot, and they transfer the heat uh, generated by those bands throughout the engine. Uh, and I've seen, you know, I've, I've gone out when I lived in Virginia. Uh, getting ready for a flight the next day, I'll go out, you know, the afternoon before, plug the thing in, um, put the uh, cowling plugs in the engine, close the cow flaps, throw a blanket over the whole thing, and go home. Mm -hmm. And the next day I'll come back, you know, 12, 16 hours later, I'll come back, and before I even start the engine, I'll just I'll flick on all the instrumentation and uh, flick on the JPI, the, the, the engine monitor I have, and it will show, you know, 80 degrees oil temperature. It'll show each cylinder at you know 70, 75 degrees, uh, and you know the core of the engine is is uh, close to that also. Yeah. And to me, that's that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I want to let David go here, but quickly, yeah. um, What? Um, all kidding aside, how much wattage does this rig draw? You know, that's know? a really good question. I don't know. Um, I can certainly research, and I'll try to do that here while David's talking. Okay, David, what's your take on this whole thing? Well, they. Jeb's system is absolutely the hot setup uh, yuck, that yuck, was yuck. On, on, on the wish list for Air Comanche when we still owned her. And uh, depending on where we live, when, when the next one comes along, uh, something like that will be in the cards. Uh, but there are, other, there are other options if you manage them well. Uh, I think the next best thing is talking to your FBO about pulling you into a heated hangar overnight. Uh, that'll kind of do the same thing, and it might cost you a few bucks, but it, it, it sure beats the extra wear on the engine. Uh, and our airplanes didn't have system like Jeb's, but we got really good service out of these propane-powered heaters where they stick a pair of hoses up underneath either side of the oil pan, 
and blow hot air up through the bottom of the engine and out the cowl inlets. You do it on a medium setting for about 45 minutes to an hour. And particularly on days when the temperature is down in the, uh, in the uh, below freezing territory, uh, 25, 20, 15 degrees. Uh, and you can do just like Jeb does. You can jump in the airplane, flip the switches on, and look and see an oil temperature up and around 60 degrees and cylinder head temperatures of around 80 uh, to 100 and uh, that'll get you going. the The oil's warm. Uh, the you know the most of the metal is hot. It, it's not warm to the core of the crankshaft. I can't tell you that. Uh, but that, coupled with modern multi viscosity oils that didn't exist when a lot of these rules of thumb were created, right. uh, go a long way to making it easier on the engine. Uh, but at the end of the day, the best thing you can do for the engine after preheating it is fly it a lot. That's right, too. Yeah, okay. Right. Do you have any yeah, luck with answer, that number? Yeah, to answer your question, um, <clears throat> the system I have on my engine um, does 100 watts per cylinder and 200 watts on the sump. So you're looking at 800 watts. 800 watts. So that's not yeah. inconsiderable. It's not not. In, not, no, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not inconsiderable at all. Um, another, you know, uh, way to skin this cat um, there are there are a number of of custom uh, um, products out there that um, um, push yeah. heat, heated air uh, through the, uh, the <clears throat> excuse me through the cowling inlet. Yeah, that's what Dave was just alluding yeah. to. Yeah, um, there's there are electric, uh, there are propane powered. Uh, there's all kinds of different things here, um, and they 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 do a good job too. But taking a a, a trouble light. You know, the, the light, you know, that you use around the garage or in the shop with a little hook on it that you, you know, you, you hook on underneath the hood or something like that when you're changing spark plugs or something, uh, the hood of your car, I should say. Um, you can take one, maybe preferably two of those, and, you know, gingerly place them in the engine compartment, close the engine compartment up, um, put a blanket over it, put the cowling plugs in, close the cow flaps, all of that kind of thing. And and walk away for for a day or something like that, and you're going to get basically the same kind of an effect. It's not going to be nearly as efficient, um, and uh, it might not heat the engine as evenly over that period of time as as a custom heater uh, system might. Uh, but you're going to get pretty much the same effect. Yeah. Uh, the the idea is again, in my mind, slow, steady application of the heat. There you go. Yeah. I, I was just about to say I've seen guys use uh, shop lights. With infrared bulbs in them, you know, the kind like they used to, you know, cook hot dogs with and set them on little, uh, they have them on clamps, they clamp them to the uh, bottom side of the cowl, point it up and get the oil pan warm and like you say, leave it overnight, 24 hours. Uh, good to go, and probably uses every bit as much electricity in the long haul as the system on your airplane. And I, I've, you know, I haven't seen it done, but I've certainly heard stories uh, in in routinely uh, cold areas like Alaska and, and uh, um, northern Canada and things like that, um, especially out in the bush. Um, when they finish with the airplane for the day, they drain the oil. Yeah, that's the that's the, the legendary story <laughs> yeah. I've always heard is that and they drain all the oil the hut or, or or whatever like that to keep it warm, and then when they get ready to go the next morning, the the, the oil at least is warm. Maybe they've 
you know, um, done something uh, to keep the engine warm or something like that during the during the night. I don't know what that would be on the bush, but they, they pour the warm oil in the engine and off they go. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, thank you. That's interesting. In the forums, uh, listener Punky uh, has asked us a question. He says, "Hey guys, it's really illuminating when you talk about various flight gear. How about continuing the tradition? For example, when Jeb spoke about his tablet computer for holding approach plates, that was pretty cool. And he invites us to talk more about uh, not that necessarily that particular example, but uh, but different pieces of gear that we've that we've known and loved or admired or lusted for or whatever. And so, l- let me let me." prompt the conversation this way. Let me ask each of you this question. Um, within reason, I'm not talking about G1000s or something crazy, impossibly you know, expensive, but, but in your travels, what piece of gear would you change out for another in your airplane? What, what would you like to add to your Jeb, to your airplane? Dave, would you have liked to add to your Comanche? Why don't you, uh, uh, I don't know, who wants to go first? I'll, I'll jump in. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll talk about two things. One, I talked about an episode or two ago. Um, it, it's called the Glove Light. I picked this up at, at AOPA here. Have you been using a few it? Weeks ago. Have you been well, using it? I was it? just going to get to that. Okay, now go this, ahead. Yeah, this is the little. This is the little neo. It's I don't know neoprene or whatever thin neoprene glove that you strap on your wrist. There's a a, a, a thing for your thumb and a thing for your index finger, and each has uh, an LED light on it. There's a switch. And a battery built into all of this. Uh, Twenty-five dollars uh, is what I paid for it at the at the show. And you use it at night in the in the cockpit. And wherever you want to put your hand, there's you're going to point light at various things. And I've used that a couple of times now. Um, most recently last weekend. And I kind of like it. The only downside to it that I have found is is having uh, that glove. It's, it's not designed to grip. It's designed to mount the light, okay? Mm-hmm. So having that on your thumb and, and, a little, uh, and your, your forefinger sometimes will interfere with something you want to grip in the cockpit. Um, but otherwise, it, it works as adver- It's a very simple product. It works as advertised. And uh, if you do much night flying, and, and especially if you know, you're, you're like, like me, your airplane's a little bit older and maybe the lighting isn't uh, as good as it could be or it's certainly not modern. Uh, it's a, it's a nice adjunct. It's a nice little add-on to to, uh, to night flying. Um, if I were to add, um, go out and spend real money and add something to my airplane, um, I would probably uh, upgrade my 530 uh, to the latest GPS. The latest, yeah, my GPS. Upgrade it to the latest spec. I've got one of the, the earlier 530s, and I've upgraded the software on it. What do the new uh, ones do that you don't do? Well, now? it's not it's not WASP compatible. For, for the big the big thing, and uh, what that getting WASP compatibility uh, would give me the ability to shoot uh, RNAV approaches. I can shoot RNAV approaches now, but I do them in in what I would call the non precision mode. Uh, the WASP uh, upgrade uh, to the 530 would give me um, a GPS. Um, um, I forget the what the word would GPS energized GPS directed glide slope. Uh-huh. Uh, for some of these newer approaches, which I don't the capability I just don't have right now. Yeah, and they that, call it R. There's RNAV plus V, and there's VNAV and and LPV approaches, all of which come closer to the precision approach level of an ILS. Uh, except it's all GPS based, and it's only possible if you've got WAS to begin with. 
Yeah. It, Plus, upgrading generator. would get you the option of putting traffic and weather on your 532. G- GPS uh, generated glide slope, I think, is the correct term. Right, right. Yeah. Now, David, what? Give you 200 feet of, of, uh, of uh, decision height like uh, an ILS does, but it, it splits the difference, if you will, between uh, the strict non precision approach that I shoot now and the ILS. Yeah. Oh, yeah. David, when you return to being an airplane owner, what would you like to have in it that you didn't have in your Comanche? Well, uh, a multifunction display that I could feed weather and traffic mm-hmm. onto. Is there one of them that you got your eye on? Oh, there's a number of them that would do the job. Uh, and I'd make that choice at the time I had the airplane based on, you know, what what's currently available. Uh but there are a number of them that would do the job fairly well. Uh, Without asking you to put a stake in the ground, just name a few so that people can think about it. Well, Avidyne makes a, a, a good system. Honeywell makes a, a couple of good ones. Uh, Garmin, I don't think, makes a just a straight-up multifunction display, but you can sure get what you want with the uh, uh, 530. As a matter of fact, you can get that with uh, Honeywell's new 770, too. It's uh, an all-in-one comparable to uh-huh. the... Would the Aspen the gadget fall into this category? Uh, yeah, it could, if I had a pair of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I, I'd, I'd want a pair of them. Uh, and some benefits to the Aspen, they they would both have AHARs and built-in backup batteries, so you'd have all the redundancy you'd need to actually get rid of the old gyros and air data that you would otherwise need for backup. Uh, but that and an autopilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, something that was just up to the level of my needs and... And, uh, you know, the one that always pops into my brain when I look at the, the money it costs is the uh, STEC System 30. Uh, gives you altitude hold. Uh, with the right setup, it'll track a GPS, BOR. You can run it off the heading bug of a DG or a primary flight display. Uh, and it's not terribly expensive, but the leap up to a couple of levels, and there's a, a couple of century models, and I'm partial to it. Uh, but the leap up to something that's uh, a little more sophisticated has gotten smaller in the last couple of years. So that's another one of those which what I'd actually pick when the time came would depend on the latest stuff that I could uh, find on the market. And with a little luck, I'd buy one that already has a good autopilot. That'd yeah. be lovely. Yeah. Okay. That sounds cool. I uh, I haven't flown the Gobosh uh, up at Southern Maine in a while, and uh, I have to get rechecked out now because they've got a new uh, air, new Gobosh that has a uh, um, Dyn- is it Dynon? I say Dynon. People give me funny looks when I say Dynon. Yeah, Dynons, right? Dynon uh, uh, glass glass panels um, are on it, and uh, so they've got. It's, apparently, it's a it's a checkout that can actually be done on the ground. You just need to get together with an instructor and get briefed on how all this stuff works. And uh, um, but that's I'm looking forward to giving that a try. It's kind of cool. It it plays into my my you know geek sensibility. So that's kind of fun. Oh yeah, and, well, and, uh, I flew an airplane today with a about a. Eight-inch wide primary flight display and a separate multifunction display, and you know, the more you use that stuff, the more second nature it becomes. The more you appreciate the the the, the benefit of going from a what three and a quarter inch attitude indicator 
to uh, something that's eight inches wide, and even if you're looking out the right side of the airplane checking for traffic, your peripheral vision still sees the attitude indicator. If you're flying by hand, it's really hard to miss it. Yeah. We'll talk about this more in the future, so uh, I'm going to try and do it all in one week here. Last week, I think it was last week, sometime recently, we talked about the uh, medevac aircraft down in, I believe it was Australia or Samoa or something like that, that uh, from up here in these states, we think that's basically the same spot. I apologize to people down there who know different. Anyways, uh, the... Ozzy, throw, throw, throw your Foster's cans at yeah, it's Jack spelled, Hodgson. It's spelled Hodgson, H-O-D-D, yeah, right. Um, so uh, one, a listener in the forums, a uh, listener, let's see now, a uh, listener, Falcon, Falcon 124, has posted posted a, a quite comprehensive post um, filling in a lot of the gaps and, and expanding on, on a lot of detail uh, of that uh, of that incident. It's pretty interesting. And this is actually... My lights just flickered. Are you guys still there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was cool. <laughs> Everything went dark for a second. Um, so... Uh, Falcon one sure there was the lights. I don't know. <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Beer, you Jack. never know. I need another beer. Um, so... Uh, Let's see now. Uh, Falcon 124 has given us a lot of detail on this thing, and it's pretty interesting. And uh, this actually is more in the category of a shout-out than anything else, but I just wanted to direct anyone who, who's interested in that story. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at this and have any any thoughts on it. But... I, I looked at it the other day, and the first thing that popped into my mind is I think I would have preferred the ocean, too. Yeah, he describes <laughs> the terrain with much more uh, much more authority than we were able to. And well, it, uh, when, I, when, we, when we talked about it the last time out... Uh, I, I had looked at something about this island, and the impression that it left me with what I saw at the time, and I couldn't find it again, was that this was not friendly terrain for trying to pick a different spot to belly in. That right. really the water, even night, the water was the, uh, the option with the higher probability mm-hmm. than anything outside the runway itself. And, uh, you know, this kind of reinforced that, and I appreciated that because uh, there's there's been a little flying in my past where you look down at the terrain and kind of said, wow, I'd really prefer if that was water. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any thoughts here before we move on? Pretty much the same. Uh, I think uh, think we even talked about some of this on the last episode of the basically had very few options if they were if they were down to you know down to fumes and um uh sometimes the water is the best option yeah okay any landing you can swim away from yeah. <laughs> we've talked a lot Spoken over like a true seaplane pilot <laughs> We've talked a lot over 163 episodes about light sport aircraft. Um, it's no surprise, no secret that we're we're big fans, or at least I am. Dave is. I think Jeb is. Jeb's yeah, more of a yeah. debonair guy. Um, a thread discussion thread in the forums, uh, and particular one particular uh, a listener uh, writing, uh, wondering in writing why the line was drawn weight wise <laughs> where it was. Um, so the upshot is that uh, is that there's a handful of uh, traditional um, uh, what they, I guess they call legacy aircraft that fall into the LSA category. Most notably, perhaps uh, Piper Actually, Cub. Actually, it's quite quite a long list of airplanes. In the okay, well, I think some of the ones that people I think are most familiar with are like the Cub and the Champ and those kinds of things. But another legendary small aircraft, the Cessna 150, um, is just above the limit. And and the question is, and so I guess my question for you guys is, do you have any insights into 
to what was the thinking what was the decision making process that picked the weight you know dividing line that they did I don't think the 1,320 pounds. Yeah. Okay, Jeb, you go first. Is it, is it, it, 1,320 pounds is an even multiple of a kilogram conversion. Right. Do it backward. Yeah, I was, I was, gonna, I was doing that. 1,320 divided by 2.2. Really? 600. Ding. 600 kilograms. And I don't now, think 1,320 is all that close to the 1,600-pound max gross weight of a 150, 152. Yeah. A lot of people, and, myself included, um, have have are kind of disappointed that the 150 doesn't fall into the category. Um, and I think well, this would really, really energize light sport aircraft if that whole fleet suddenly got a new lease on life. Well, a little history is in order here, okay? Uh, when the United States Federal Aviation Administration issued Part 103 back about 1982... Uh, they said 155 kilogram weight limit for what we call an ultralight aircraft. There had been some lobbying to do something a little heavier to maybe incorporate a, a, a low speed but allow two seats. This was the compromise the FAA came up with when it proposed, you know, when it issued rule. Uh, Canada, England, and Europe took a look at what happened in the United States. They listened to their constituencies and came up with uh, an ultralight standard that was considerably heavier, thinking that it would be more uh, conducive to encourage growth in private flying to make the airplane a little heavier and allow the guys to carry two seats. So Canada, England, Europe adopted uh, what they call microlight standards that uh, created aircraft heavy enough, large enough, uh, and powerful enough to carry two people. Still not very fast and still not, you know, all around, you know, day-night IFR airplanes. But they carried along. The U.S. Ultralight Association, recognizing that we had this whole fat ultralight problem, the two-seat trainers, uh, the exemption that they operated under, why not just create a rule, a category, that allowed for two seats, and let's model it after what's being done in the rest of the industrialized, modernized world. Uh, the FAA really drug its speed acting on this proposal until about 10 years ago, and then it was almost five years spent working with volunteers from the uh, uh, light experimental movement, the ultralight movement, uh, the EAA, uh, the ASTM, American Society for Testing Materials, it used to be, and they started working on these rules, these ideas, all these changes that were going to have to take place to the FARs on the basis of the European weights. Uh, that kind of morphed into we'd really like something a little bit heavier, uh, uh, something a little bit more suitable for what we think we're going to be doing over here. And 600 kilograms wound up being the compromise number. Uh, that's why so many of the airplanes that we see in the LSA market today are actually growth versions of what's been sold in Europe and England for a long time as micro lights over there meeting that standard. And now there's effort afoot in those markets to change the rules over there to make them compatible with ours so that those guys can just build one airplane for both markets, Europe, England, U.S., but that's 600 kilograms. That's really where it came from. And discussions about going heavier, 
we're we're part of the we're part of the negotiations. We're part of the process. Uh, but then it started to get into well, how much heavier do we go? Uh, how much more weight do we let it go to? Uh, do we let it go as heavy as a Cessna 120 or 140, which also aren't included, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so the Cessna 150 was way outside the bounds. Uh, so were some other airplanes that, you know, might have benefited from a little bit of a renaissance today. But uh, there was no conspiracy to lock out those airplanes. Nobody was trying to lobby against them. Uh, God knows if uh, the weight limit had allowed for the Cessna 150, 152 to exist under the LSA category. I dare say we'd be looking at Cessna resurrecting the 152 today instead of coming up with a skycatcher. Jeb? I, I can't add anything to what Dave just said. Okay. Uh, uh, right. I think that's as accurate as, as you'll hear it. Last week on the podcast, I think it was last week, um, with the, I, I'm, doing, I'm done that a lot tonight. It's because last week was so long ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, longer than usual. Once again, uh, here's an example of uh, the feds are listening to the podcast and acting accordingly. Uh, <laughs> put finger quotes around accordingly. Uh, we talked about uh, through the fence issues, uh, uh, residential developments uh, wanting to be able to uh, have an opening in the fence so they could taxi through and so forth. Um, then we see a news story um, about uh, uh, the TSA uh, getting a little crazy at uh, Punta Gorda Airport, uh, where there's a uh, residential air park adjacent to the airport, and it has an electric uh, a gate that opens and closes. Apparently, you've got like a garage door opener in everybody's airplane, and they taxi up to the gate. They push the button, it opens. They taxi through, it closes. That's how they get through the through the fence. The uh, TSA uh, marched into town recently and said no, and and basically permanently close this gate. Uh, no, they didn't permanently close it. I'm sorry. They, yeah, you, uh, they you have to a, get they, somebody from the ramp side. You have to, to get someone from the FBO you. to come over and supervise opening the gate. That's this right. is this is like, jeez. Ah, yeah, I know. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, man, D- I, Dave, you do some deep breathing. Jeb, what do you have to say? I, I don't have anything much <laughs> yeah. to say here. The, um, um, just another episode in the continuing saga of uh, how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. I mean, at TSA, apparently TSA is rationalizing this by saying that there was a particular aircraft that taxied through and did not wait, did not taxi away slowly enough to observe the gate closing and no one sneaking through. And that was sort of what one of the ways that they rationalized How this. How do they know they couldn't tell? Well, the thing that kills me is like, the TSA really thinks that this gate is the thing that's keeping people out of well, the airport. Here, here's, you know? the, here's the thing, kiddies. The, 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 the private development on, on the non-airport side of that gate is itself a gated community with controlled access. This isn't like a cul-de-sac where you can taxi out, you can drive down the cul-de-sac and go, oh, look, I can get into the airport from here. Uh, even if the guy did, you, you get him off to the side and say, look, butthead, you're going to screw the pooch for everybody else. But no, in the normal sense of the nonsense of the nonsensical TSA, they take the reaction to the extreme. Uh, and do something in line with a totally stupid agency. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, not that we feel strongly about that. No, no, no. Well, this is another one of those uh, little, little nails in my attitude and my repeated uh, belief that the only way to fix this 
is to sunset the TSA and start over in cooperation with the transportation industry and the people that actually use it and not this unilateral piece of tripe the out of control that we've had since this agency began yeah yeah uh, okay. you know and in, in, in their predecessors uh you know barring aircraft from flying ga aircraft from overflying nuclear power plants okay just you know, where do we not fly over well we can't tell you that <laughs> yeah. that would be pointing out where it is to the terrorists well right. but if you don't want us to fly over it and we don't know how you know where they are uh, then you can't expect us to, you know, not accidentally go over them once. Well, oh, no, no, we're holding you accountable for not knowing where they are, not overflying them. Well, this is the same level of stupidity that we were seeing back then, except in that case, it was a predecessor operation. In this case, it's an agency that just can't. Yo, and this isn't even talking about their bloody manual being out on the Internet. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Have Gee. you read it yet? I, yeah. Anything yeah. good in there? Well, you know, not a whole hell of a lot that anybody with some common sense couldn't have figured out to begin with. Yeah. Uh, you know, a few of the, the few of That's the. That's why they had to write it down, Dave, because they don't well, have a few of the sense. few of the more objective things, like you know what the percentage of random checks is supposed to be, and and and, and numbers like that. Uh, the rest of it is like, wow, you think nobody could have figured this out on their own? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm Dave, sorry. Where did, where did it's not going to make a New York you, Times bestseller list. This this manual is supposed to be, you know, uh, sensitive security information, Dave. Where did you get a copy of it? <laughs> you know, it landed in my email from an un, un, unidentifiable source. We all have our sources. All right. Go so on. you know, the the punchline here, is, speaking of Punta Gorda, is that uh, you know, don't be thinking that we can have our through the fence and the TSA will look the other way because they're clearly not going to. One, one other way. point here. Go ahead, Jeb, uh, and then we'll move on. Vis-a-vis just Punta Gorda per se. Punta Gorda for years um, had no airline service. So, you know, just a GA airport. It's not that far from here. It's just the other side of, uh, there's an inlet about, you know, 10 or 15 miles south of, of Venice. It'd take me 15 minutes to get there, 10 minutes to get there once I got the gear up. Um, and then uh, a handful of years ago, I think it was Spirit Airlines decided they didn't want to compete against Naples or, or Fort Myers for traffic, they would go one step better on those air carriers and they would start serving Punta Gorda. The, the, the runway was long enough. There wasn't no, no other competition there, yada, yada, yada. So they, they put airline service into what was a sleepy little GA airport. TSA came in, painted a big yellow line uh, around part of the ramp. Mm-hmm. Uh, calling that the uh, secure area, and um, didn't really, you know, uh, put up any signage or anything like that. And, and airplanes started taxiing through there, and they got, you know, chased down and screamed at, and and probably uh, uh, they heard a rubber glove snap and, and things like this. And um, basically, they just changed the whole culture of this little airport. Um, I don't know if there's. There's probably a lot of animosity still uh, to this day towards TSA for, and, and towards Spirit Airlines for coming into that airport like they did. There's probably a lot of people who have been flying out of there for decades that, hey, we've always done it this way kind of thing. And um, 
we all know that uh, you know once we get into a, a certain way of doing things, we don't like to change that. Um, that's as much going on. That's that's as much a factor here as I think uh, going on here as anything else. It's just uh, wholly disproportionate. Even it is. with one carrier in there, this is wholly disproportionate. Yeah, this this ain't O'Hare. Okay. Uh, um, they got one carrier going in there maybe two or three times a day. And I don't even remember the equipment. It's either 7.3s or, or 7.17s or MD-80s or something like that. Maybe an Airbus. I don't remember. Uh, but, uh, yeah, okay, the rules are rules. And, and, and we got to keep a sterile area. And we got to do this. And we got to do that. But, uh, you know, there, there has to be some proportionality here, too. And we're not seeing that out of the TSA well, ever. Here, here, here's an, an, an unsolicited, but I want to see Clyde Morris take on Punta Gorda. <laughs> who's, who's Clyde Morris? Clyde Morris is the, uh, um, the uh, flying ant, uh, uh, the cartoon uh, strip that uh, uh, Wes Olashevsky is the artist, I believe, uh, uh, writing that. Used to be on AvWeb. Now he's on AeronNews.net. Um, 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 years ago, uh, I've got a I've got a strip, of, an original strip of his hanging on my wall upstairs that he wrote for me, or wrote about me actually. I was dealing with in an earlier life dealing with some some early uh, uh, um, machinations, if you will, by the TSA, and uh, he, he got wind of it all and wrote up a strip and. Uh, he got got him to sign it for me and all that kind of thing. It was really cool. But uh, um, I'd like to see Wes get hold of this too. I, I, I'm I'm kind of surprised I haven't seen or heard anything from him. Well, he touched on the manual recently. I'm 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 wanting to you know, Wes. I don't expect you're a listener, but if you are, uh, you love TSA as much as we do. Do something on Punta Gorda, please. That's right. It's ClydeMorris.com. Clyde with a K. K-L-Y-D-E-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Aviation's only ATP ant. <laughs> okay. we got a whole slew of, uh, of shout-outs here. We've got to like, see if we can race through here. Um, I'm going to take the first one out of you, away from you, David. Uh, we got uh, uh, Quite a press, right. press release announcement uh, from uh, the folks at Sun and Fun uh, over the last week or so, announcing that in addition to all the normal good stuff uh, this next spring, coming spring, they are announcing that the uh, Air Force Thunderbirds will be flying uh, at the fly-in. Uh, I believe on uh, Saturday and Sunday will be their official appearances, and I think they're arriving like on Friday or something like that, and they may do a, a, a practice uh, uh, uh you know, a flight as well. So, uh, among all the things to look forward to at Sun and Fun uh, this coming year, uh, look forward to the Thunderbirds. Also, look forward to uh, EA Radio again. Uh, I know that uh, Dave Schalbetter is already putting together all the uh, different uh, aspects of the uh, station, including uh, more podcasting again. We're going to be back there, and uh, many of the other aviation podcasters will be there as well. So, Sun and Fun's coming. Can't wait. Back on Sun and Fun Radio. Can't wait. That's right. That's right. Can't wait. Is- right david pick one what do you want to talk about uh real quick and dirty two wichita centric ones first my friends at hawker beechcraft corporation are sending a a premier 1a a beechcraft premier 1a that's their very uh, that's their light jet uh so on williams on williams they're sending the airplane out for five days to visit 10 military bases to uh deliver Santa Claus and presents for families at those military bases. Uh, and there's a link where you can kind of follow along and see where Santa and the Pre-Bear 1A from December 14th to 18th 
Very cool. Very cool. Jeb, these all have our name, me and Dave's name on that. Uh, you want to steal one? Which one do you want? Uh, to I'm not going to steal Please. one. I'm going to add one. Oh, you're going to add uh, one. Okay, Dave. Uh, Jeb, go ahead. And, and this is kind of for Dave, too. Um, um, shout out to uh, uh, Susan Sheets. Uh, oh, yeah. Pres- president of the, the uh, National Aircraft Resale Association. Um, ran into her at the FBO at Manassas last weekend. She was just coming in from, uh, she's working on her private. Uh, yes, she doing, is. Uh, uh, working on, uh, I don't know, uh, cross-country or, she was solo, whatever. Uh, but she was checking out, and I was kind of getting checked out, and I hadn't seen her talk to her in probably five years or so. Uh, and uh, she, oh yeah, you got a, you got a podcast with somebody. What's his name? Uh, I said, Higdon? She said, yeah, that's it, Dave Higdon. Um, and, uh, she, you know, obviously said to uh, remember her to you and, and whatnot. So I just, oh, that's say, nice of her. I yeah, saw her in NBAA for a few minutes and, uh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, she, she apparently has listened to us once or twice. Uh, hopefully, hopefully she'll listen to us some more. I but, told uh, her I was going to talk about her soloing, uh, when I saw her and she just soloed and, and I uh, said, so, well, 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 we'll plug you into the podcast. And she actually tuned in and listened to that one. So, uh-huh. hello, yeah. Susan. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to hear your folks are doing better. Very cool. Very cool. And, and keep up the training, girl. Yeah. There you go. Let me just uh, quickly, a few more here. Um, a couple of interesting, or here's an interesting website we came across, a listener sent uh, along to us. Um, this is a blog from an air traffic controller, but not merely any air traffic controller. He is an air traffic controller in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, just reading a little bit from the header of the of the blog, he writes, uh, as I begin this blog, apparently in January 2005, uh, I am three days away from leaving for Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, I retired from the FAA after 23 years as an en route controller controller at the Washington uh, Air Air Route Traffic Control Center, and uh, I'm going to Afghanistan to work once again as an en route controller at the Kabul Air Control Center. So uh, he writes a lot about uh, aviation world in Afghanistan. Pretty interesting, pretty topical these days. So uh, check it out. That's at atcsdave.blogspot.com, atcsdave.blogspot.com. Next, uh, f- uh, the the UCAP forums are all a buzz about uh, a, a aviation related TV show that's uh, on Canadian TV called Ice Pilots. Uh, now it sounds pretty cool, but unfortunately, none of us here have been able to look at it because uh, it's apparently not only only on Canadian TV, but is only available through Canadian internet. It's blocked in the U.S. So, uh, but they keep talking about it, and uh, they they wanted us to spread the word and uh, see if we can find a way to to get it available in the U.S. and maybe even get it on TV in the U.S. Ice Pilots. Uh, apparently, there's a website, um, IcePilots.com, but you can't watch the videos. I'm told. So, uh, um, something to look out for there. One of the one of the sources of frustration here is the Canadian network is called History Television, which is not, emphasized, not the same as the History Channel that we get here in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's two different, two different channels, two different networks, and that's why it's not Well, we'd like to see the show before its history. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, a quick shout-out to a, a Twitter uh, 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 
I want to say a person or a thing, but uh, it's an airplane that's on Twitter. Uh, November 9 or 379 or Bravo uh, is, has its own Twitter account, and uh, uh, 79 or Bravo is the 1958 Cessna 175 that is being uh, given away as a raffle by the Houston hmm. Houston's 1940 Air Terminal Museum. And so uh, I believe it's like $50 a ticket or something like that. Um, and you can buy a share into the raffle to uh, possibly win this cool old airplane and it's and, not uh, bad odds one chance in 2500 that's right so you can go either to twitter.com slash n 9379b or you could go to uh, 1940airterminal.org which is their main website we've talked about them in the past it continues to be a great cause Finally, uh, I want to say our own Royce Earl. Royce Earl is, of course, one of the folks who have been creating the awesome uh, uh, opening uh, disclaimer clips that we use uh, every week. And uh, uh, Royce has uh, bitten the bullet and gotten into the whole podcast biz himself uh, in a big way. He's taken over. I got an email from him. He says, hello, Jack. In October, I took over production of AOPA's Never Again podcast. Uh, as you seem to uh, champion new podcasts, I thought I'd let you know about it in case you might want to plug it on. On UCAP. Well, of course we would. Um, he says it isn't a new podcast, but it's the, my production of it is new. Uh, we've got four episodes up by now, and uh, he wants everybody to give it a try. I think that's a great idea. I confess I don't have a direct URL here, but I'm sure if you go to AOPA.org uh, and then search for their podcast section, or probably just Google uh, Never Again Podcast. I was going to say, do the Never Again. Yeah. That's Never Again podcast, and uh, and you'll find uh, Roy Searle's podcast. So uh, that's all I've got. Uh, you guys got anything else? No. Nah. No? Nah? Okay. Then we'll stick a fork in this one. Jeb, uh, as always, it's great to talk with you. Uh, Jeb is an aviation uh, journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com uh, is part of the day job. Um, personal website is JEBurnside.com. Uh, you can also find me occasionally on AvWeb.com and uh, maybe even AviationConsumer.com. There you go. There you go. And Dave Higdon, I appreciate your. Uh, I'm, I hope you're feeling better. I appreciate your uh, kind of getting it together to uh, to get together tonight. It's always fun to talk to you. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, AvBuyer.com, Dave Higdon. Is AEA.net uh, or Google me and find the wreckage that I've done before. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Uh, he's scoffrejet in the forum. Say hi to him there. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan, Royce Earle, and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just $10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Here's to all my friends who want to live long and prosper by going flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Believe me. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFM. <laughs>